Welcome to the 10th episode of Distantly Socializing. Today's episode is called Teacher Talk. I sat down with two other teachers and we just kind of talked about how the quarantine has affected us as teachers and what we missed about the year ending the way it did and some of our our frustrations and things that we enjoy and um, just all sorts of teacher stuff. So we hope you enjoy. Thanks. So we are, we're doing teacher talk tonight for Distantly Socializing, and we have Mrs. Gentry, Michelle, we have Michelle, Michelle, say hello, hello, Hello. and we have Morgan, hello, (laughs) and Michelle and I teach together at our school, which is in Northwest Ohio, as we've kind of talked about before, and then Morgan teaches at a school in more sort of inner city ish. So, and our, our, um, school district where Michelle and I are is, um, upper middle class, upper middle class. And we're very fortunate with having all the resources. Morgan's is just in a different area. So it's, I wanted to get different people's takes on, um, the whole quarantine and COVID-19 and anything else that, that comes up. And the other cool thing is that Morgan's daughter, was in our, Morgan's daughter Frankie was in our class this year and Frankie was on the first episode, I think, um, or one of the, I don't know, maybe the second one, but she was in one of the episodes and she did a really good job. So let's, we'll just jump right in. How do you guys think the year went with the end of the year ending a little differently this year? <laughs> Thoughts? Well, I- I'll jump in. I would say that it it didn't go horribly, but I think the hardest part was losing the connection with some of the kids. So kids who I've been connected with in class sort of dropped off during that time period. And so I was really surprised. Um, I had some surprises. Some I knew would stay tuned in. Some I thought for sure didn't stay tuned in at all. And some that I thought that would not did. But that was hard losing some of those relationships. And I hate to say that that happened, but it did. Mm-hmm. So there were some kids that didn't check in at all through that time period. And I kind of took it a little personally as in, you may not want to check in with academics, but I was kind of wounded that they didn't want to check in with me personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Morgan, what about you? Um, I can add on to that. If you had a 9 a.m., my kid was still... <laughs> Still sleeping and not waking up, so don't take that personally. Uh, <laughs> she came on. She came on. Um, the end of the year for us, it was it was crazy. I mean, we had I had one day to create lesson plans that ended um, that went for the rest of the school year and to close up shop and close the doors. And it was a it was a sad day because we weren't sure when we were coming back. And I actually haven't been back to school since. Um, for my students, I teach middle school, like you said, in an urban area. It is, however, we have uh, students coming from over 30 different districts. So it's a wide range of different races and uh, ethnicities and socioeconomic status. And so everybody is in a different position. We were lucky because we have, uh, we've been one on one to one iPads for about six or seven years now. And so we are a little bit um, more tech savvy than a lot 
lot of schools. So we were able to switch over to the Zoom and the kids uh, were pretty, uh, pretty good at figuring all of that out. Now, like you said, Ms. Gentry, the, um, the students that I've got over 130 students personally that I was wow. account had to be accountable for. And um, a lot of them showed up and a lot of them didn't. What was um, really disheartening, but really shows how much students uh, depend on their teachers for emotional support um, and just that structure was that those students who did end up kind of bowing out and, and not joining in, um, a lot of that had to do with mental health issues and emotional uh, issues that they were dealing with with all of this. So as a team, you know, the administrators and the teachers just coming together and reaching out to these students, it really put in perspective what's important. And that is just the well-being of our students, not necessarily the grades and the standardized testing and all of the things that society, um, you know, or that, you know, politicians, not entirely society, but, you know, politicians and administrators seem um, deem important. We found out during this time it wasn't. So um, there was a lot of lessons to be learned by everybody, but I would agree with you, Ms. Gentry, it was those lost connections that, that was the most difficult. And wasn't it just a phenomenal relief? I think a whole burden lifted when we didn't have to do state testing. And I thought, oh, I, it's amazing how much we carry that on our shoulders throughout the year. Even when our administration says, you know, it's not all about the scores, but it feels differently when those scores come out. You know, it's like you say one thing, but you feel another. And, oh, I was just a weight was lifted off of my shoulders when they said that. And I'm sure the students, too, because some of those students who take that very, very seriously, I know they were very concerned about how they were going to do now that we were doing online learning. Right. And when you lose something like state testing, which to, which to all of us as teachers know that, you know, that's not what's important, um, to have those, those couple weeks that we spend doing all of that stuff, um, and almost feels like a waste of our time, it was kind of nice to add in um, lessons that were meaningful to our kids and that were showing up and that, that were able to do some stuff. So I'm hoping that in the future that this is a lesson to, you know, all of those corporations that are making the money off of this type of thing and the politicians and the people who are um, you know, mandating these tests, that it's an eye opener, that this stuff, this isn't what's important, you know, in education. I do think it was an eye opener for a lot of parents that um, this is much harder than I think they thought. Not to say that they didn't give us credit and knew that we worked hard, but I feel that maybe some of the teacher, the, pub, the public view Mm -hmm. of the teacher because a lot of people think they know what teachers do because everyone's been in school. Right. You know, I can't, I can't speak for what a doctor does. I mean, I have an idea, but I've never been in that position, but you know, everyone's been to school. And so they can say, well, 
I know what it's like. I know what they do, but they really don't until they step into our shoes. And I think a lot of parents and society as a whole finally realized just what it is we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And that was just with their one child. And especially if their child has, you know, special needs or has different um, things to, to work out that maybe that they have to do all day and try and teach with other siblings at home and trying to get their own work done. And, you know, maybe realize we have 25 kids in a classroom, all who might have different things coming at us and interruptions throughout the day. And we're still expected to get it all done and done well. Right. And, and wouldn't that be nice if all of that realization translated into an increase of salary? <laughs> that, that would show that society really appreciates us. Yes. Know? I doubt that would happen, but it would be nice. Right. There was something I saw on social media that said, we learned through this that we can live without the sports heroes and the you know the, the rock stars, the musicians, and all those highly paid people. But what we can't live without are the educators, the first responders, um, you know, the, the ground level people that are really working hard, the, the grocery store workers. Right, the McDonald's workers. I mean, all the restaurant right. workers and, right. Yeah, yeah. That, that felt good to be appreciated like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so monetary appreciation wouldn't be bad either. Right, <laughs> right. right. And especially now because, you know, they're, these they're, companies are getting bailouts. Mm-hmm. But we're not. We're getting cuts. Exactly. Right. It doesn't seem. Well, still, the expectations are still there for us. I mean, we still need to, you know, hit these standards and reach these benchmarks and check those boxes and get the scores and, you know, and take care of the highs and the lows and the. With that, and then now they're going to make these cuts and they're going to take our resources away and the class sizes are getting larger. Well, then I thought too. I don't know about you guys, but I didn't feel like I was really doing authentic teaching like I normally would in the classroom because partly because I, I wasn't there. First of all, I wanted, I mean, having that connection, that one-on-one connection is, is so different or cause I teach ELA. And so reading a book and talking about a book and discussing books that we've read and, and in class together, um, you can't do that now. And you had to have everything on, uh, like we used Google, Google classroom. And so we had to every, have everything on there and, um, and everything that we sent home for the kids to do, the kids had to be able to do independently because parents, you know, couldn't always help. And I got, I did get to the point with some kids where I just made it not necessarily easier, but um, I guess a little bit easier to do at home on their own because I had one mom tell me that, you know, I, and then her child was very, very capable and could do, all the work by themselves. But she said, I, I'm a single mom. I have three kids. I have to work from home from eight to five. And if I don't, I'm terrified that I'm going to get laid off and I cannot help my child while I'm trying to work. And so that kind of made me think about it a little bit and make it a little bit more, I don't know. Yeah. It, it just wasn't what I would have normally done in the classroom. What's going on in this world right now? It feels like everything is just crumbling around us. The I'd like to add onto that point um, a connection with this George Floyd and the, um, the, the riots that are taking place 
um, and the protests that are taking place that have to do with um, the treatments, treatment of, of, of black people in America. And I think the correlation that I'm trying to make right now is that there are people suffering. Um, they're suffering not only because of COVID, like they were probably suffering before, um, you know, socioeconomically and, um, you know, and they're suffering now more so because of, um, you know, what's happened to the economy. And now that we have all of these, these culture wars, um, what I hope that this does in education is put into perspective how important the um, educators, how crucial it is for us to be connected to these students um, emotionally. Because, you know, when we have students of color come in, you know, I'm a science teacher. Uh, what does, you know, what does cellular biology and cell parts have to do with them when when sometimes they're worried about you know what food is going to be on the table and that they have to take care of their five brothers and especially now that this is happening and parents are are, are unable to do that and those kids are home taking care so um for me it's it's the hope that um you know that the way that we go about teaching changes we know as teachers that they, these kids are, are important and it's important that we know who they are and the families that they come from. But now more so, this is, this is something that has to be integrated into our lessons. You know, I have to show, um, not, I, I can't just teach the, the text, you know, the textbook um, understanding of what cellular biology is i should be relating that to these students and to their lives and why should they care about this stuff and how is it going to affect them later in life even if it is setting them up for some sort of social mobility where they can learn these things and get into the sciences and get a job you know um i, I just feel that now we need to switch gears we now's the time to start focusing less on teaching to the test and these state standards and hitting those standards and um, all, all of that type of teaching and really go back to who, who is this kid personally? How can I help them um, achieve goals in their life where they can become the person that they want to be? That I think I struggle with that. You know, obviously teaching the standards and teaching, preparing them for the test and preparing them for the next grade level is important, but what life lessons can we talk about and what what things can they learn outside of the bubble of school, the, the academics? But like we did Project Lit this year with the different books of um, written by diverse authors about diverse characters and, you know, we've dealt with with different races and religions and homosexuality and um, homelessness and um, all sorts of issues with Project Lit. And it was nice because it opened up that bubble for the kids. And that's more important to me than the standards. And the, yeah. I'll teach the standards and I'll teach what I have to do, but that's always been a struggle for me to try to balance those two and knowing that what's was, important. That was a really great program. 
And I love the fact that the parents were welcome to come. And you see, when you start, um, it's, it's, I mean, I think it, for Miss Gentry and I, it might be harder in math and science mm -hmm. to make those connections. We have to work a little bit harder to try to figure out how can we reach these kids. But you were doing that. And what you did in that project lit when, you know, my daughter would come home and she would say, wait, I thought I was the only one who had this life situation and who went through all of these problems when her her um, peer, peers in her class were explaining similar things. So uh, I, I feel like, and I know you did that in the classroom too. And mm -hmm. I wish that more teachers would do that. I wish more schools would support teachers because I know you had, you know, we were able to get those books, but those specific types of books that talked about, you know, the one was 9-11, mm -hmm. where we were talking about terrorism, we were talking about different um, societies, and, and uh, another one was, which one was it with the young girl who- Blend, Blended. Blended, right. Blended. Sure, <laughs> yes. I thought she was, it was about her, an autobiography, <laughs> but um, yeah. A lot of those points hit close to home. Yes. Yeah, they sure did. So, yeah, you're doing a really great job with that. I got to applaud you on those that program. Thank you. But um, we did have our our book clubs that we that we had, and parents were invited, and I invited community members, and we we had a few people come from the school board and um, the administration. But but yeah, it was I it was primarily on my own at our level. I and mean, Mrs. Gentry and Mrs. Tonegato helped also, but as far as beyond that, like I had, I had written a grant looking for books, project lit books by these diverse authors. And, and I, it was, it was turned down for whatever reason um, within the district, but it's, which is just, it, it's a little bit frustrating because it's, oh, like, yeah. these are the things that we need to be teaching. And these are the things we need to be talking about. And we need to put these books in these kids' hands again, because we, we live in, they're fortunate to be in this bubble and, um, but they need to look outside the bubble and they need to learn about the rest of the world and learn that they're, you're right. There are other people just like them. But. I remember when you read, it was two years ago, you had read refugee to your costume and one of the um, children couldn't believe it, how much that related to their lives because their families were refugees mm -hmm. and, and the sort of the same, um, were looked at the same way as some of these others. And I think you, if I recall, you said that everybody else was just so quiet and listening and couldn't believe that their classmate that was sitting right next to them had experienced some of these things that um, this child and refugee had. It, you, you think, oh my gosh, that's horrible, that's terrible. I can't believe those happened, that happened, but it still seems somewhat removed until you actually say, we've got kids right here in our building that that are experiencing that. Right. Well, yeah. we brought even brought in the religious factor of it with, um, you know, the three different kids in refugee. One, um, it was a Jewish family, and then um, there was a Muslim family. And so we talked about that, about the different religions and, you know, about the Bible and about, and we shared things and they brought in um the Quran. Um and then the, and then the, one of them brought in a prayer rug and showed us how they used it and showed us how they prayed every day. And 
in our public school. I mean, obviously we, I made it clear that we're not, you know, teaching anything in particular. I mean, we're promoting any one religion, but that's how we learn. And that's how the kids learn about the differences. And um, it was kind of, it was kind of cool. Yeah, I think that's great because when you, I, I know what you mean when you say the bubble, because I grew up in Sylvania. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this, this is a bubble. And, and unfortunately, it's a bubble that not uh, not everybody uh, gets out of. You know, I, I grew up just traveling. I was able to travel around the world and see different cultures and ways of living. And um, so and, and luckily, I've been able to, to do that with Frankie a little bit. And I plan to do that more. Um, but when you don't have that diversity in the classroom because of the demographic and the, the place that you're living, it is up to the teachers to do that. That is your job. You know, you have to create that diversity that doesn't exist and you have to bring it in through literature, through different people, through um, whatever way you can. And in um what I find where I work is that that's, it's a culture clash on day one. Mm -hmm. These kids who come from Sylvania and then they go downtown Toledo, they haven't even been downtown Toledo, some of them. They're not allowed to walk on the streets, you know. And then you've got um, kids, you know, uh, kids who have grown up in, you know, uh, apartments with their six or seven siblings with them in a one room, you know, bedroom. And, um, you know, that's a culture clash from day one. And we're forced to try to figure out how can we, um, you know, how, how can we learn about one another? But but the kids, they, they do that, you know, and mm -hmm. in, a, in a suburban school like where where we live here, um, I, I think you're doing you guys are doing you've gone you've done a great job. You've done a great job of integrating and you haven't been the only teachers doing that. Um, right. And, and it's, a, it's a difficult task to do. But Interesting that you, say you grew up in sort of a bubble and I grew up in a, in a different bubble out in the middle of nowhere um, and in the, in the, out in the country where there was, you know, three houses per mile and my school was very small. My graduating class had about 130 and everybody knew everybody. And, and there was no diversity. We might have a few migrant workers coming in uh, in the spring. And then my senior year, there were two African-American children that came um, and they were treated well, but because they were very athletic and I don't know how that would have gone otherwise, but my whole school was white. And when we went to college, my sister and I decided to not room together. And my sister opened the door to her dorm and her roommate was black. And it never even occurred to us that our roommates would be anything other than white. And, you know, here college opened up a lot of diversity to us. And I worked on campus and a lot of my coworkers were from Singapore, Malaysia, and, and it was wonderful. They were wonderful people. And we got to know so much about their culture through them. But pr I just felt like I had been sheltered. We had been well traveled. My mom did a great job of getting us out and taking us all over the place. But that wasn't my life. And I just I just couldn't get over it. We could not get over it. And it was a big culture shock for my sister. They, it was a whole different way of living with her roommate's friends and how they talked and hung out. And it was very, very different. And we just weren't prepared. And I think 
that was so unfair to do to us because yeah, we just sent out into the world. And we weren't. I went to UT. It wasn't like I was that far away. Yeah. Right. But it might as well have been across the world for as far as I was concerned. Yeah, right. that's a that's an interesting point. And when you say like prepare. I, I think about teacher education at this um, right now, I'm working on a PhD in social foundation, uh, foundations of education, sociology and women's and gender studies. And only now at this level of education. So I've got my bachelor's, I went and got my master's and now I'm here. And only now are, am I really delving into what it takes to be an educator and to teach in a culturally responsible, responsive way. Um, I think it's something that has been so taboo in America to be able to speak about race um, and to speak intellectually about it. And we have this, we have this fear. And I think that, and you know, all three of us were, were white educators. I have a, um, you know, I have a, a biracial daughter and to me, I wonder how is it that we are going to transcend this, um, you know, the way that that we were taught to teach and and overcome, um, you know, the overcome that to be able to to reach these students of color. It's mm -hmm. our responsibility to do that, and I wonder how teachers are, you know, we're not in school right now, but I am sure that this civil, this unrest that is happening right now because of the racial injustice in our country is going to continue, you know? Um, and I feel like it is our duty as educators to, that we're not, we should not ignore this. Mm -hmm. But you ask the administrators, even in my school, we're a progressive school, we're an art school, where we speak our truth we, we we're free we are you know but they're going to call this political mm -hmm. and um they're not going to want us to speak out mm -hmm. and as teachers i always feel like we are silenced because mm -hmm. we're supposed to appease you know we don't want to um create any waves we need to appease the administration we don't want to and that is that is against who we are as as beings because it is in our blood to to be doing this in the classroom so i wonder how you guys feel about that and how you plan on on um teaching this these kids about what's going on right now i, I mean i really feel that if we represent as many different groups as we can then i don't feel like i don't feel worried about being sort of suppressed by administration I don't know how they could possibly argue with, you know, worship showing all, you know, different examples of, of how people live. How, and how do you suppress that? I think one thing, if we just stuck with, you know, okay, we're going to teach, you know, about, you know, our, our race and then we're going to teach about the, you know, the blacks or the African Americans, and then we leave it at that. I, I think you have to go on and and talk about people from Asia and, and, and the Middle East, and you have to bring all of that together. I, you know, one of our schools locally does a whole international um, evening, and it's wonderful. But that should be like a daily thing. And I, I was thinking the other day, I went to go get a Band-Aid, and I'm like, 
even our band-aids are geared towards white people's skin. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and I think Michelle, I agree with you that how could the administration try to suppress that? Um, but I think it's a comfort thing. I think it's for everyone. It's a comfort level. It's uncomfortable to talk about other races sometimes because it feels like it shouldn't, but it feels awkward or uncomfortable asking questions and learning about other races. And I think even like, you know, black history. No, but we're, we'll, they will send an email out in the end of January, beginning of February, reminding us that it's black history month. Try to, you know, put that into your curriculum and your teaching. Why, why does it have to be that month? And there was, I can't remember who it was. It was a black man who was talking, who said, uh, Martin Luther King Day was the one day or that around around that time, the one day when they would all focus on him and they would, you know, the teacher would tell stories or read books and everybody would look at him. And he said, I hated that day because it was it was like that was the only day that we could talk about, you know, my culture. And I thought that today I um, we had um, the protest. We had some protests in art in the town where Michelle and I live. And but I took my two daughters, he decided to stay home, but I took my daughters and we walked for a while and we listened to some of the speeches. And at one point we stopped in front of the police station and we all took a knee and the police officers took a knee and we had a moment of silence. But after that, they started chanting, you know, Black Lives Matter and then say his name and George Floyd and, and um, back and forth. But then it was loud. It was really loud and kind of, kind of overwhelming and one of my daughters my younger daughter said can we can we go now is it and I said why and she said I, I said is it are you uncomfortable right now and she said yeah and I said no we're gonna stay a little bit longer because I want people need to feel uncomfortable and you need to be part of that and and I don't know I just I think comfort the comfort level and stepping out of your comfort zone is a huge part of this for all of us yeah I um I agree. I think that, well, I chose not to go. I was invited to those protests and I chose not to for my own, um, at this moment, uh, what I call self-care. I feel mm -hmm. like I, emotionally I need to step back. But luckily, I know that I am in a position as an educator with 130 students coming to me to, um, to actually to make a difference. You know, I'm not out there with my signs today. But I'm making, I'm writing lesson plans on right. how can I incorporate this, um, you know, this travesty, this unending, this is basically systemic, institutionalized racism that has, um, that is present because it is our history of America. And we cannot move forward until we understand that this is how our country was built. And um, with the rhetoric and the leadership, if you can call it that, that we have right now in this administration, I'm ready to take a stand and say, this is wrong. And um, what I mentioned before, as teachers, you know, we aren't usually given that opportunity. And we're, you know, it's, we're expected to just, um, you know, to beat around the bush and to not say it how it is, but this is, how can this not, you know, be 
considered political. This is political. And I, even though I'm a teacher, I have a voice and I'm going to express my voice. My kids can, I'm going to do it in a way that my students can do that as well. But this is an opportunity um, for these children to learn about this history and to learn about those experiences of their, of their fellow students. And, um, and I feel like that's part of my job. And I, and I do like the fact that we have, this, we have this platform of educators and we have these opportunities to see these kids on a daily basis and to make, to make real change with the young ones. And we teach the grade levels that that can happen mm-hmm. because yes. the moms aren't yet molded, fifth and sixth grade. They're not yet molded. Yeah, they might have ideas from home. You might have, you know, whatever it is on the news and you might be hearing about it. But until you get into those intellectual conversations with your with your peers, just like Frankie, when she was reading that blended book and um, she learned about her peers having these experiences until you talk about that and make that real, you know, um, those are it's planting seeds Mm -hmm. and that. that understanding and that empathy and that um, fear can fear of the other can dissipate at this fifth and sixth grade level, Mm -hmm. I think is just really important. We have really important jobs. I think it's also, you, you said it's political, which it is. And it's also, they're also learning about the government and, and I, and that's kind of partly why I took my daughters down there today because I wanted them to be, part of this and to just see what this is all about. And there was an interesting, at one point we walked by, there was a house that had um, some, some signs up that were of the opposing view of different, different types. And they were yelling out and um, people were yelling back and, and the girl in front of us said, that doesn't seem right. That seems like it should be against the law that how are they allowed to protest against us protesting against racism? That shouldn't be right. That's, that's against the law. And I was talking to my kids later and the one the woman who had the signs was yelling out, do your homework. And so I was talking to my girls about it. And I said, that's, that's absolutely true. You need to do your homework. You need to know all the sides. You can't just follow what everyone says. You need to figure it out for yourself. But we have this right. We have this right to protest, just like she has this right to protest. And that's one of the, you know, we talked about rights and responsibilities and um, that we are allowed to protest as long as it's not violent or destroying things. Or um, So that was kind of an interesting thing. I think they're learning that part of it, too. Yeah. Um, I, Morgan, I think you're right. We have this platform and we have an I think we have an obligation to to use it. Our problem is time. Mm-hmm. There is no time. And to really have those serious conversations and allow students to share their stories and interact with each other and respond to, to dialogue or literature that we've read takes time. And you can't do that in 15 minutes. Yeah. You yeah. need half an hour every day, every day with those students being able to open up and have those conversations and to build trust to open up mm-hmm. about their feelings. Yeah. And they, I mean, there's no time to sneeze. I mean, they just. Yeah. And that is so sad, Miss Gentry. And, and this is a long stretch, 
right now, this philosophical stretch I'm making in my mind, but you talk about the First Amendment rights, their freedom of speech, right? We mm -hmm. are suppressing that in our mm -hmm. children when the state has mandated that we have these standards that we have to reach by this time to get to this test of which you will be responsible and held accountable for your students scores they are taking that away from us and if it's our job to provide these students with the skill sets for them to become um adults that they can uh you know they can be happy healthy uh, make money and all of that, um, but but we are taking away the time and they have taken away from us the time in the classroom to teach these critical thinking skills mm -hmm. of which they can become social justice advocates. They can become, you know, um, leaders. They can become, uh, you know, they can be parts of, of these movements. But But guess what? We're teaching them to be robots mm -hmm. and to reiterate what they have just memorized in a textbook, which goes back, you know, you know, since the beginning of education, we know that that stuff doesn't work. You're not, you know, but by by creating and designing an education system that does this, it keeps the oppressed down low. And it keeps the dominant culture and it keeps those in power and in control up at the top. And that's what they want. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. That's my. <laughs> <laughs> not, only, not only just filling with standard after standard, but I think in my case for, for math, what, these, what my grade level is responsible for is I would say 40 40% of it is developmentally inappropriate. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it kills me because this is, I see their self-esteem suffer and they yeah. start to lose worth yeah. in their abilities. And they and and then that sets them forward of, I'm no good at math. I can't do math. Yeah. I hate math. Yeah. When really it's not them. It's they're being asked to do something that's just developmentally inappropriate. And I think, why, why aren't we getting these kids to, to you know have things that are developmentally appropriate and time to develop character and empathy towards others and how do we do that we do that by reading by by sharing stories and by communication yeah mm -hmm. and we need the time yeah. to do it and you know i've been studying recently about um stem and women in stem and girls in stem and uh, there's a lot of research out there about this, uh, this middle school, this fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade years are very crucial for girls' um, uh, development and self-esteem. And guess what? We're, put, we're putting all this math and science down their throats, but they've lost the joy of it, you know, where they used to want to learn about the sciences. And, and to them, it was, um, it, is, it was like, it's like magic, you know, and they're so excited about it. But then comes this pressure of these standards and of, um, you know, uh, these facts that they're supposed to learn. And then guess what? They lose the joy. And then guess what? They're not interested because girls obviously are, they want to be pleasers. They want, they're mm -hmm. the ones that want to do the A plus. They got to work harder than the boys. They got to, you know, if they're going to make it. And then they get this idea in their head that they're not, they're not good at math. They're not good at science. They lose the, the interest. And then, um, 
they never regain that interest. And then here you have, um, you know, in the in the biggest money makers, the biggest fields of where you can have that power and that money. Guess where the girls are? They aren't there. Mm -hmm. So like, again, I feel like it's systemic. I think that um, just like the racism is in education, sexism is there as well. And, yeah. and so all of that comes from, you know, going to the, you know, Department of Education. How do you, how do you get heard to make a difference? Yeah. They're not going, they can read my letter and they're going to put it aside. How, and I know that there are so many out there, probably the majority that feel the same way we all do. Right. So why, why, how do we make this change? How do we make this occur? How do they make, how do we make them listen? Well, I think too, you know, bringing in the gender issue, I agree with you, Morgan, about, about girls with science and math. Um, but I also think on the flip side, school can be very difficult for boys because the typical, the traditional format of schools, you know, sitting in rows and being quiet and listening, and it was a, came from a long time ago at like preparing them to work in factories. And um, it's not a, it's not easy for a boy to sit there and to sit still and to listen and um, not be fidgety and move. And the, and I, I took a really, or I read a really cool, I went to a conference about um, the way boys learn. And they said that even the communication that women, you know, we talk at a higher frequency and apparently we use more words than, than men do. I never would have known that. Um, but boys, you know, and boys, comprehend things better in short sentences. So, you know, when we say, take out your math book, open up to 75, and we're going to do the first four problems together, and then we're going to do the last eight problems on your, they're gone. Because they're, they're, we talk so much, and they just can't follow along. And, you know, I always ask my own kids, who are the kids that get the most, get, tr get in trouble the most in your classroom? Is it girls or boys? And it's obviously always boys. And they're always, you know, it's because they can't, they can't sit still. They can't stop fidgeting. They can't, you know, they're more active. They need, they just can't, I don't think they can be taught in this traditional way. And that's another, I think that's another obstacle. And um, I agree with you in terms of my experiences in the classroom <laughs> with the boys versus the girls. However, I think we need to look at it, not as this is inherent or, you know, like some essential quality of boys versus girls, because mm -hmm. we know that with gender, you know, and especially um, I, the way things are now, it's gender is, is fluid and right. character, personal characteristics. Doesn't right. matter if you're a boy or a girl. You work. It's the way that you are socialized, and we tell boys they're allowed to be active. Go ahead, run around. You know, right. girl, you need to sit down, pay attention, listen. Um, you need to, you know, you need to obey. And what I hope comes of all of this is that we understand. We learn that with the COVID stuff is that sitting in a seat in a classroom isn't necessarily the best way to learn. Right. You know, I actually love that Frankie could go to her room on her own time. And of course, I, I'm lucky enough to have a, a kid who um, who enjoys learning and who actually likes 
doing that kind of thing. It wasn't a struggle for me. I can honestly say that part. Um, not so much anyways, but that she could take a break and have mm -hmm. the freedom to go outside and ride her bike and play with her bunny and be active, you know? Yeah. Um, and that I'm hoping that, that schools learn, you know, or that we, we, we reconfigure the way that, um, that we teach because sitting in desks and listening to somebody hours on hours is, you know, it can't be beneficial in, right. in the long run. So, right. Yeah. Nor for teachers. I think, I mean, I, I've never worked harder than I worked during this online teaching. Yeah. It was exhausting. Yeah. But well, that being, you know, I was, a, I was sitting in a chair all day long you know, answering kids' questions and meeting with them and making videos and looking over assessments. And I thought I was going to lose my mind. I think I did a few times. And I <laughs> but just, maybe, yeah. But maybe we can figure out a new way because for me, um, I liked, because I've got, I, I do something different than you guys. I've got five different classes teaching the same lesson. So my fifth, uh, you know, my fifth class, I'm like, what did I say that? I can't remember. Where was I in this? You know, <laughs> right, and, right. Um, for me, I loved being able to do one lesson, have the, you know, so much excitement on my my video or whatever, and then have them watch the video and then interact with them in different ways rather than being my own little robot and repeating the same lesson five times. So mm -hmm. I just feel like there's a better way. And hopefully with all of this, we'll learn that we can be flexible enough to think of ulterior ways of teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. Well, I will say that it did enable me to then have some one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. Google meets with some kids that I never would have yeah. mm -hmm. because they needed different questions from me. And it was really nice to be able to meet one-on-one -on -one with some kids that I that for whatever reason, wouldn't have happened during the regular school setting. And that it doesn't was, happen because you're being interrupted by 20 other kids. <laughs> with mm -hmm. <laughs> or they may have been afraid to ask in front of all the others. And right. here they can just reach out and say, you know, can I do a Google Meet with you today or tomorrow? I'm like, sure, let's, let's do one right now if you're up for it. And that, I loved that part. I loved it. Yeah, I had the same experience with um, a handful of my students who were D and F students in the classroom. Mm -hmm. They could not sit still. They did not pay attention. And then when they had the freedom to learn on their own time in their own ways, yeah. they showed up. They were on Zoom meetings. They had done their work. They were active. They were engaged. And so it just goes to show that one way, one, this, you know, style that we've been doing doesn't work for everybody. No. So ideally, if if the plans were in our hands, if they had said, okay, Jennifer, Michelle, and Morgan, you decide how we go forward, what would the two of you, what's ideal for you moving forward in this world that we're in right now? I got an idea. <laughs> got Hit an idea. it. All right. Um, Maybe I'll like that one because I'm torn right now. All right. Uh, you alternate days, okay? So you got your group going Monday, and then they'll be back on Wednesday. You give them something to do on Tuesday. Then you got the Tuesday group and the Thursday group, okay? 
And then Fridays, we go to school on our own with no kids around us. And we <laughs> plan and we get to grade and we get to meet with our teachers. And that's my plan for next year. <laughs> so we have, we were, have an idea of what our class list, or at least what our numbers will be. And we have 27 kids in our classes for next year. Oh, you guys got big classes. Yes. So, and we know they're not going to hire any extra teachers um, to help us out with that. So I, if we went with something like that, how would, I, you know, we wonder how would we even do that? I mean, we, if we, we, if we can only have nine or 10 kids fit in a room at a time, how are you supposed to, please don't do that. Um, how are you supposed to, how are you supposed to even make that work? Okay, girl, I didn't go through all the logistics here. <laughs> I'm just saying that's the idea. Put it in place. I do like that, Morgan. I like that for a lot of reasons. A, because I think it, it's a good combination moving forward of in-class instructional time, which I think is very important, but it also gives those kids the freedom of, like you said, Frankie, she can do her work on her time, go out, ride her bike, do different things of that. You know, some kids are so stressed out, but then some kids really need the structure of school. I don't know how parents, my worry yeah. is, you know, yeah. for some parents, we are the babysitter. Yeah. And well, and you know, that was why, um, that's why schooling started to begin with. It was a place to put your kids when you went to work and it right. hasn't really much changed since, no. but, um, that is where we need the federal government and the state mm -hmm. government to intervene and say, here's money for this. Right. And we're going to, um, you know, we're going to collaborate with the daycares and with the child care facilities and whatever parents are going to need to put their place, their kids while they go to work and, you know, help rebuild our economy and all of that stuff. That's not our job, you know? Right. And um, I'm hoping that, that they step up instead of, um, you know, making cuts to to schools, to education. I hope that they, they, they're putting the money into that rather than the big corporations, you know, because we're going to need it. Can you imagine a day of, a day a week of collaboration and preparation? That'd be great. It's, I mean, it's what teachers crave and what they need. Yeah. And um, I'm down. Yeah. I'm down with that. Sort of like you do, you are most productive when you have, you know, less time. I sort of feel that sort of applies here. I think if, you know, when you have those kids with you, you are going to make the most of every single minute. Absolutely. And you think of how our Fridays go. I don't know how they go in your school, but I know how my Fridays in my classroom are. We are beat. The kids are done. Yes. They can't learn anymore. Teachers can't teach anymore. Yes. Let's get, let's make some, let's use this time wisely and efficiently. And I think it would be great. You're on 24-7. Yes. yes. I mean, even during lunch, you're getting confronted by your principal. you got a student that's coming in that's leaving for the day. You need to get those materials ready. You've got to – We don't have to meet this broken. There is no – you have to plan when you're going to use the bathroom. Right. There is no 10-minute break. If something is – you know, you can't walk away from your desk for 10 minutes out of frustration of something – You. You are constantly, constantly on. My son used to come on. He's a different school district. So he would come on different days to, to be with me in the classroom to help if there's a class party or something. 
every single time he would be asleep in the car by the time we home. And we're talking a high school kid near Heinz like, Mom, I I don't know how you do it all day. He was ex- he was exhausted from being on. Yeah. He wasn't, you know, and he was just there helping. Did they mention any time when they were going to make a plan for your school? Um they're they're in the works. Same thing. We're in the works. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I have to know, what are you guys reading right now, personally, if anything? Uh, uh, personally, for my class, I've got about 20 books right now. Um, I'm, reading, uh, I'm reading about feminist science, and um, so I've got a topic of a whole bunch of authors. Patricia Hill Collins, who writes on Black Feminist Thought. Um, and Women's Ways of Knowing, reading that. And for school, I'm reading uh, White Fragility. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a book out there if uh, everybody should get their hands on right now. I've seen that. If you are a white person and you want to be an advocate for people of color, yeah, get on that. Get on. I just finished um, Black Brother, Black Brother by Jewel Parker Rhodes, about two boys who are brothers and... Uh, they come from mixed parents and one is black. One of the boys is black and one is white and um, the struggles that they have. It's called, I need a light read by a good author. So I don't mind mindless. I just need a good writer. So mm-hmm. let me know who you who you recommend because I'm reading some deep stuff. Oh yeah, I, yeah. Need to get, I need to lighten things up. So let me know if you have somebody. Yeah, what about you, Michelle? Um, I... I started with a crawdad sing. Um, well, a year last ago. Summer. I was gonna say you <laughs> recommended it to me a year ago. I read it, finished I, it. I, <laughs> I'm still on page thirty-two. Just <laughs> read the math, girl. Okay, she works her. They're That's just, true. And so, I love to read. I just. This year has been a struggle for me. Now I was reading the Project Lit books, yeah, and I was loving those. And I think because I knew that those I need to get those done, and I need to get through this book. And I'm the sad thing is I'm really enjoying it. I don't know what my problem is, but my next book after that is going to be it's either going to be Noah Trevor or Trevor Noah, whichever one. Trevor Noah directed it. Which one is it? Trevor Noah. Yes, Born a Crime. Trevor Noah. My next book. Such a good book. That was such a good book. Well, Michelle and Morgan, thank you so much for joining us and doing our teacher talk today. That was really fun. And Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you. It was we'll have to we'll have to do it again sometime. Very Ask cool. Me anytime. I will. I will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank okay. you.